Okay, so in the spirit of uh, you know taking risks, trying new things, we decided that it would be fun to uh, to test this out. We had thought about uh, doing a podcast for a while, and uh, finally decided to pull the trigger earlier this year. And it really has been a lot of fun so far. Uh, John Morris was a guest. Patrick Lynch, who's here from Ohio State University, was a guest. And Mark was definitely on our short list of folks that we wanted to uh, to invite. And so. This is really just a conference talk, and we're calling it a podcast, but we want you all to see that there's not much more to it than that. Have any of your institutions started podcasts for your alumni yet? So I think, like, we've been interviewing alumni forever, right? I mean, how many alumni magazines or campus newspaper articles are alumni interviews? And this is just a new way to get to know people, a new medium, and I think whether you're thinking about um, how do we help uh, tell the story of career success or career paths or uh, really even share the philanthropic impact uh, that donors are having, uh, I, I think that there'd be great merit in considering starting something like this. And it can be, uh, as we heard in the video content session at the beginning, incredibly low cost uh, to do so. Um, really, with an iPhone and a, and a microphone, you could, you could get started. If you have any questions about how we've done it or lessons that we've learned, don't hesitate to reach out. But I did want to uh, welcome uh, Mark Koenig from the Oregon State University Foundation, uh, who came out from Corvallis yesterday and is on West Coast time, but doing his best to, uh, to uh, power through the day here. But um, I, there's zero chance, in spite of how much time we spent together over the last few years, that I could get your job title right. <laughs> so why don't you give us a sense of, of your current title and what that means? Um, I'm the Assistant Vice President for Advancement Services, Analytics, and Digital Strategy for the Oregon State University Foundation. And I've actually got that down. His business card good. is this big. Yes. It's a lot of different things uh, for the Oregon State University Foundation. Uh, I oversee the IT uh, group, the research relationship management, and I also work across party lines, what I call the cylinders of excellence throughout our organization, really trying to get us to come together and look at how we're uh, tackling things like donor experience. It's not a one-shop job. It's a really an organizational uh, construct. And so I've been doing a lot of work with digital transformation. You may have heard uh, that term used a bit. Uh, a lot of uh, McKinsey work and such falls into that. And that's really kind of the role I play within the organization, is really kind of a convener and really trying to break down those barriers. So take us back in time to where you got started uh, when you learned about the advancement world and when you decided that, that this was the path you wanted to go down. So We've only got 45. It's okay. No. <laughs> See, the 90-second the, the version, but you know, I think a lot of people, everybody has their own story about how they sort of stumbled into this world. So at the time, I had just moved from Seattle, Washington, where I was working for a real estate investment trust, uh, and I had gotten a job at Xerox in uh, the Coke building, of all places, and Xerox was running these uh, copy centers. And basically, there were six you know, across Houston that were in major buildings. And you know, at the time, I was, it was a lot of stress. It was a lot of work. And that job opened up at Rice University, and it was in their file room. I literally got my start in the file room at the advancement shop at Rice University. About a How's month the decor there? Like, what was the vibe? In, in, oh, I in love. The file I'm room? an organizational freak, so I love to organize things. I had that thing organized in a month, and they said, "What are you doing in our file room?" And said, "Here, there's a research job. You really should be doing that." 
so and that's uh, that's pretty much history from there. Uh, I think uh, I finally decided that advancement was a career for me after I'd spent about five years at Rice doing uh, research. Uh, and I built, uh, or this is back predating uh, pre a lot of our relationship management or prospect management work that we all do now. It's become status quo. Uh, I actually started with spreadsheets. I had 17 development officers I was reporting to, and I had to help them all. And at some point, I couldn't write enough profiles to save them. So I started basically using Excel and started a uh, basic uh, prospect management system that I uh, decided when I left uh, Houston to move to Washington, DC, I got a, a, a spot at Georgetown Medical uh, doing very similar work. I built out Georgetown Medical's uh, prospect management system for them. And Georgetown said, hey, what are you doing this for them? Come over here and do that as well. And so uh, the rest is history. And you then made the move to Oregon State. You joined uh, Mike Goodwin, who's the CEO of the foundation and has been very involved in a leadership level at Case and is, is an industry expert. But did it take a lot to convince you to move? Um, it was funny. It, I really wasn't planning on moving. They, uh, I remember vividly they flew me out to Chicago uh, to meet them halfway. And I was like, well, I'm not really applying. Oh, just come, come. And I went and met with them. And uh, then they put the, put the hard sell on, and I was there. And I'm so happy I made that decision. I mean, Mike Goodwin, our CEO, is really uh, changing the industry. He has been so critical uh, throughout his career. He was, I led uh, Georgetown's first billion dollar campaign, uh, worked previously to that to Washington State. A lot of people came out of Washington State back in the day. Uh, and he's been at Oregon State. He led Oregon State through its first capital campaign. We raised over a billion dollars in our first capital campaign. We're one of only 30, around 30 schools, 30 public schools that have ever raised a billion dollars in their first campaign. And life in Corvallis, Mark was just telling me that his his hops are ready right now, oh, yeah. and uh, serious gardening situation out there. Yeah. What keeps you busy outside of work? What's life like in Corvallis? Uh, gardening is my zen. I have to find my zen, where, especially in the information world, we get bombarded with a lot of information every day, and I have to find that little bit of my time every day that I can kind of zone out and really just enjoy, enjoy my garden. Does anybody else grow hops here by, by any chance? I thought it was a long <laughs> shot, but Mark's trying to figure out what to do with his hops, and I yeah. thought somebody might have an idea. But uh, I'd like to sell them. Uh, maybe I could figure well, out. Well, we were trying to get the night shift thing. guy before he left to see uh. if you could unload them. Um, <laughs> so we have been spending a lot of time over the years, and Mark has been a great partner, but he's also pushed us very hard um, on a variety of fronts. And I think what's been interesting over the last uh, year in particular is that for the first five or six years of getting to know you, we were just, really it seemed like every time we talked it was about technology, some new feature, some new integration. Uh, it, it was just so much about technology. And I think over the last year in particular, we've almost spent no time talking about technology. And we've spent so much more time talking about just really flaws in strategy, not necessarily just at Oregon State, but industry-wide. and a big gap in how our org charts, John Morris talked a lot about talent, uh, does not reflect, frankly, some of what technology allows us to do. We heard about it from HubSpot. We're obviously trying to pursue some of those same trends. But it's almost like the technology was behind in the sector for so many years. Now it's, it's ahead. Um, but the strategy hasn't evolved to reflect that. 
and the people we're hiring and the org charts haven't been adjusted uh, to reflect that new, you know, the new strategies. And so would love your perspective on just how that conversation has evolved over the, the last couple of years, not just with me, but um, in general, and, and how it makes you think about your role as somebody who's really been a technologist, but is now more focused on organizational change and design. Well, it's really about the people process and the tool. Sometimes the tool is the least important of the triad that I talk about. So um, as we see technology, I mean, how many of you have an old ERP system? How many of you have an ERP that's over 20 years old? Raise your hand. That's like Banner or your big system across the board. Those, those technologies out there have been around for 30 years in many places. There is so, you know, I, I love using the uh, analogy, there's so much lipstick on that pig, it's the Arkansas Razorback. Any Arkansas Razorbacks here? Uh, but that's what we've been faced with. We've been trying to take legacy technologies and break them. You know, the other thing I hear all the time when I talk is customization. Oh, so what did you, well, how many customizations did you have to do to your You mean day one I got the system and I broke it? That's not, I mean, that's what we've lived through. But now we're at the point where technology is caught up, but we haven't caught the people and the processes up as fast as the technology is moving. And so for us, that's part of the whole digital transformation is really aligning all of those pieces together to make, uh, I like to use the, the term the orchestra. You know, someone has to conduct the orchestra and the orchestra has the drums, it has the violins, it has you know, the strings and they all have to work in harmony. But for so long, we've had little pockets in our organizations of innovation that maybe one group did a really good job or there was a really great project here, but it's not tied into the whole because your donors don't see, they may see that one experience, but they're not getting a, a total experience and really understanding you know, what it is for yourselves as a donor. How's that experience for you? Because one of the challenges we have is oftentimes we think about how do we make our own lives easier? And so we've done all this work to make the process for, oh, I don't know, gift processing or you know, this process really work internally. But we didn't think what it did to the exter what it did mm -hmm. externally. But thankfully, as you've heard today a lot, is that we're really starting to catch on to that and we're focusing on the donor experience more and more. And it's the it's the end-to-end -end experience. It's not just that one time you made a gift and did you get an email immediately after. It's that whole cycle. And for us, I think we, at organizationally and advancement, we've done a really good job with the top 1%. Uh, in some cases, it's even a smaller percentage of that. But the experience, when you try to scale it, it starts to falter. Um, we do a very good job with stewardship. Uh, but I will say that, you know, unfortunately, there's only a few people in the department. At some point, we can get down to about 100K, maybe. And then afterwards, what's the experience if you're a 25K donor versus a $25 donor. In some cases, I challenge you, it may not be much different. And that was something that we started talking about and it was, it was really eye-opening. And, uh, and I do think that Oregon State is a classic example where, if you don't mind me sharing, revenue has been up, the campaign has been a success, and donor count has been declining, retention rates have been challenged. And I think as you come out of the campaign, we've had a lot of conversations now about why it might be time to attack the middle of the pyramid, leveraging more of a funnel approach, leveraging new roles and, and new ideas. 
but it's one thing to have ideas, and one of my concerns with conferences like this is there are lots of interesting ideas, but then how do you go back and actually make change in an office that you might not control? Uh, how do you make the case to somebody who could be more skeptical? And I think that Mark has done a lot there, and we've, we've gone from you know, Mark's group to the CEO all the way up to the foundation board, and it's been really exciting to see the level of interest and buy-in in improving retention, improving the donor experience, not counting on people to make the gift because they're loyal, but really thinking what can we do to earn that gift, to make it easy for them to want to renew that gift every single year. So I'd be curious to get your perspective on that journey over the last year or so. Well, for us, uh, you're right. Um, it's, we have that major gift experience, and that's really been the, the points that we can get to, and we, can, we, we get the development officer, they're spending the time with you, but again, back to that 25K gift, I may get a thank you, I may get a note, but you know, that's not really the, you know. You're the not getting the Terra chips from, from JetBlue at, right. at the $25,000 level. Right, and how do we create that same experience? And it's more than we're gonna send them another email. It's more than, I mean, we're already inundated, and there's a lot of challenges back to why the donor counts are dropping. I see competition. We have 1.5 million uh, nonprofits approximately in North America alone. So guess what? They're all vying for your attention. Literally just got a call from a nonprofit that I support that actually I, I hadn't uh, ever gotten a call from them before, but I got the call just a little while ago, and oh, can you give? I mean, that's real. We're getting uh, calls daily. And so how do we create the relationship so we're top of mind, we're a top priority? And you've got to earn that trust. And it's got to be genuine and it's got to be authentic. It can't just be, oh, we're going to add another email or we're going to add a cute video in here. It's got to be thought out and intentional. And I think one of the, the ways that you've really made the case is by doing some of that mystery shopping. You know, really starting to map out, if I'm a $25,000 donor, what is my journey? How do I get treated relative to a $25 donor? And I think what it's highlighted is that there is a massive tier of middle of the pyramid supporters at Oregon State who are really, I mean, giving significant gifts and they're barely being asked. I mean, they, they don't have a relationship manager. They're responding to direct marketing and then getting their receipt and, and, and not much else. And so we have been really trying to make the case for new job descriptions and new roles that are gonna allow far greater personalized one-to-one -one outreach within a group of supporters who've maybe, for all the loyalty that they've demonstrated, never been contacted by a human save for the phonathon. And you know, this is a new idea. It doesn't seem like it should be all that you know, revolutionary, but, um, but you've been making the case for completely new job descriptions and new roles and new technologies. Uh, and it seems like that's been resonating with your, with your team. Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, keep in mind, we've been doing this work for 30, in many cases, some institutions, 50, 60 years. The, the constructs that we have created, the playbook hasn't changed much. It's the playbook we've had for 30 years. And what, it's hard for an organization to change. It really is, it's difficult, it's a lot changes. You know, 50% of uh, CRM adoptions fail, 70% of these digital transformations fail, because change is hard. People get 
into their habits. It's what we do. And you start lopping things on to an already full plate as opposed to rethinking the paradigm to begin with. I was using the analogy with Brent earlier of like this hotel to some extent. Sometimes you get a hotel, you put more paint on, you put more paint on, you put more paint on, you put more paint on. After a while, there's a pretty thick pile of paint there and you can keep piling that. But at some point, the structure itself is no longer, you know, maybe that's at, at heart of the problem. So how do you really rethink that and take the time and be the ability to step away from what you're doing every day and saying, is this the right thing to do? So if you had to start from scratch, Right. The foundation's broken, let's say. Not your foundation, but the <laughs> foundation. Uh, what do you do more of, and what, what don't you do? I mean, Well, I think we're seeing, as you saw in the slide earlier today, about the growth of philanthropy even this year for higher ed. You can see we're not, we're not way off base, right? We're raising more money, but that's coming from fewer and fewer donors. And we have to figure out a way that we create a bigger tent in my mind. And I love to talk about the personalization piece because it's so critical, I think, to what we do. And we have the ability to do personalization now. But really creating those experiences that are meaningful. I mean, Love Pop did a great job earlier. Those cards, I mean, it's, it, that's simple. But those experiences, I already want to take one of those and get one that has a beaver in it. Uh, <laughs> but those kinds of experiences and, and, and reinforcing... Which is their mascot. He's not just a fan of that animal. But yeah, it's their mascot. How you many other socks. people... I know that at least five Love Pops were sold during his presentation. Anyone else buy one today already or snag one from the table out there? Anybody send a picture saying we should get one of these for our school? Tufts is working on it. It's great. It could happen. Yeah. And, but, I, but I think the question is, how do you take memorable experiences like Love Pop uh, and make that one part of a journey, right? Like the worst thing you could do would say, let's go buy 10,000 Love Pops, send them to our donors, and, and then move on to the it. next thing. Yes. And I think the, the question is, how can you integrate something like that, which is a memorable offline moment, but in a way that then allows you to actually advance the relationship? Exactly. I, I'll, I'll not, uh, I had an experience uh, about two years ago from an annual fund. Uh, I won't mention which one. It's not, uh, not Oregon State. Uh, but I got a really nice video. It was done well. That's the last time I've heard from them. I mean, it's a perfect example. You do the one thing and you don't repeat it. You don't have a plan to make it a part of a stream of efforts. I think of a workflow in this case. There's a cadence. There's a, there's a drumbeat to this type yeah. of work that I think gets foregone between the rush of the next thing to the next thing. We got this next thing to do, we got this next thing to do, but we lose track of that thread. And uh, I've been doing a lot of work over the past six or seven years now, measuring alumni engagement. And I've been uh, honored to be able to be a part of the case project that just rolled out recently. Uh, if you haven't seen it, please sign up. It's gonna be a part of VSE. You're gonna, we're actually gonna be able to measure our alumni engagement and start to really understand that. But in the, in the process, we've actually mapped some journeys of our donors and trustees to see what the experience was for them using the time, talent, treasure model you know, uh, thinking about, well, they started with some gifts, and then they had an event, and then they went to, they volunteered, and we saw spikes each time of the volunteerism, which is, if you do anything, go home and check your volunteers out. Really focus on that piece first. But 
you know, you start to see that cadence and you realize that there's a lot of pieces underneath that. That's the, the, the nice note, the, the video. Those pieces need to be woven into that fabric as well because that's what's keeping people and creating that loyalty and not just loyalty, but fandom, yeah. frankly. Yeah, and I think it's a little bit about what we heard from it in the HubSpot talk, which is when they actually cut the amount of email that they sent, it improved engagement. And I think that we went through this phase where we were all embracing one-to-many communications. Wow, it's so easy. Now I can hit send an email and reach everybody at the same time. But guess what? So can everyone else, which is why when we all finish the conference today, we're going to look at our phones if we're not already and be inundated by emails, many of which we have no interest in receiving, uh, some of which could be from you know, the institutions that, that, that we work with. And so I think that there's a bit of a a rejection to the one-to-many mass marketing happening right now. And instead of having an annual appeals calendar, which basically says, these are the days that we're going to mass market to our audience, it seems like there's really going to be a shift into more of a, what is Mark's engagement calendar with his institution? What should my individual engagement calendar be? It should be based on my preferences, my interests, it shouldn't be when it's convenient for the annual fund to hit send on something. And that's going to require new technology, new job descriptions. It's going to be a lot harder than pulling a list, creating some copy, and sending an appeal, whether that's mail or email. But I think that is what's going to allow us to stand out at a time when we're all being bombarded with the one-to-many messaging that might come from a personalization engine that doesn't really feel all that personalized. Definitely. And so how do you think about, on one hand, pursuing technology that uh, supports more automation, but at the same time realizing the human element is, is really maybe what's missing? Right, that gets to the genuine and authentic nature. It's not a technology problem. It's a people process and tool technology problem. So we have to realize that starting. And then uh, to that point, I mean, what we're doing right now is we're taking a channel and we're running it dry. And then we're like, huh, that channel's not working anymore. Oh, let me text everybody in the university and I'll, I'll, see, I'll see a 500% increase from 0%. Of course you will. But along the way, you do something that I've always called slash and burn philanthropy. How many people are you upsetting by sending them a text to their private phone without explicit, explicit permission? That's where I really, uh, one of my soapboxes I like to get on is really about we have to provide the personalization, but on that other side of that coin is privacy. We want to be able to honor, you tell me that you don't want this, great, I need to make sure I'm not sending you athletics information or I'm not sending you something that you don't want. So we're having to be pretty fleet of foot because the private sector is doing a good job of this and you know we are we're just getting inundated with emails. I get maybe 150 emails a day. I can only imagine someone who's really busy successful businessman that we're is a potential donor to us. How many emails are they getting and they're not just sitting there waiting for our email. So how do we create that connection in a much smarter way where they are. It's really omni-channel. Right. And I mean, I actually So when you say omni-channel, what do you mean by that? Text, email, LinkedIn, Facebook, coming to me where I exist. And sometimes it's in person. Sometimes it's at an event. But making sure that you have a library of options for them to participate with you. 
And we've been working on um, some new models to test this that hopefully a year from now we can be ready to share, uh, you know, if not sooner. But the idea is really how do you create more of a concierge experience for many more of your constituents without having to get on a plane and go see them one by one, but also not having to hit send on an email that goes to 10,000 people. And so it's going to be a really uh, 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 defined experiment that hopefully we can share uh, with, with all of you in, in many different formats, but it's really exciting. And at the, at the end of it, we're just sit, sitting here saying, how would we like to be treated? You know, if we know that we don't want to be called at 6.43 p.m. on a Tuesday night without anybody giving me a heads up, because I would never call any of you at 6.43 p.m. on a Tuesday night. Well, maybe a couple of you I would, but <laughs> you know, you'd probably screen the call and maybe shoot me a text back and then we could schedule a time. How do we want to be treated? How do you want to be treated as a recent grad? And what's really sad is when you interview recent grads who are a year out and you say, hey, how many of you have been asked to give by your, your, your college? And they all raise their hand. And then you say, hey, how many have been contacted to see how things are going now that you're, you're, you're out of school? And if there's anything they can do to help, no hands go up. Well, what if we did that? And actually, I just heard from Cornell, Ashley Budd is here, and they're going to start a campaign for the class of 2019, I hope it's okay to share, where they're going to do a text campaign to their recent grads and they're going to say, how are you doing? How are you settling in? Is there anything we can do to help? And ask that's, them what, that's how to you want that. to be treated. <laughs> but that is not the way that it has been done uh, you know, historically. And is that a career services job? Is that an annual fund job? Maybe that's an alumni relations job. You know, I don't know. It's, it's the donor can be supported you know, in, in these ways. So see, these are some of the things that we're going to try. And, we believe strongly that in doing that, in treating people in a more donor-centric way, if somebody says, you know what, I love uh, the Oregon State Beavers, well, cool, we've got some Oregon State socks that are, are even better than our socks here, and like, we're going to get those out to you. Or, um, you know, hey, I'm really, I, I just moved to San Francisco, and I'm really struggling to make connections. Well, hey, did you know that there are X number of people in your neighborhood? Could I be willing to make an introduction? There are so many things like that that can be done remotely that don't require the high cost of major gift fundraising uh, that we think can be really efficient. And having a tool belt for the, these uh, officers to be able to do that. Because right now, I think a lot of times, if you're a telefund or if you're an annual giving caller, you're calling them for one reason. Can you renew or reactivate? And, so, and if somebody says, hey, Mark, appreciate the call, but I just lost my job, what do you say? Oh, my. <laughs> I am so sorry. But I mean, it's right. We don't necessarily put the dots together and help them. I, like I Oregon State University can help that person that just lost their job, but that caller can't. Right. And so how do we integrate holistically everything Oregon State has to offer to create a better donor experience by, uh, you know, really blowing up the old model, and, and so that's some of what we're kicking around. I think you sort of see some of this, I mean, especially in healthcare, if you think of uh, some of the, especially in cancer centers with the docents that help guide a patient throughout the process, and so they really help them take them from one spot to the next. So thinking about that from the university perspective, what would that look like? How, what would that experience be? Like Brent said, I just lost my job. You know, here's the connection to the career services. They're really here to help you and, you know, or, you know, whatever you have. And Which I'm sure major gift officers do all the time, where mm -hmm. there needs to be that concierge, the referrals, the connections around. What if we could take that same experience and extend it to 10,000 more Oregon State grads and then really measure 
their retention, their upgrade, downgrade, their referrals in a major gift pipeline by surrounding them with a more holistic experience. Um, so that sounds cool. Seems like there's some heads nodding. Uh, what are you most worried about? Um, People, process, or technology? I'm worried about us burning the channels out. So for example, with the phone, uh, right now, I think iOS 13 is supposed to be coming out with a, 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 basically a blocker, robo-blocker. So you won't have to worry about your robo-calls because industry is going to solve that problem for us. Uh, Google, if you look at the new Google email, you've got the different tabs across the top that say, you know, hey, this is for, these are promotional or what. Well, once you start going into those channels, it starts to become a wasteland. How many of you actually check that, that area in Google, Gmail? I don't. I looked the other day and I had like 1,500 or some ridiculous amount of emails in there. I was like, oh wow, some of these are kind of neat. And I had just forgotten about it because of the way it's being routed. That worries me a lot. I worry about the privacy, not being able to handle privacy that we see, GDPR. How many of you have actually completed your GDPR compliance? Raise your hands. That's not enough hands. Now, keep in mind, California has the same thing going, and guess what? Oh, nonprofits, they're, they're exempt. Do you think your people that are getting these calls, getting hounded by 1.5 million nonprofits, see the difference? They don't. I've had uh, five robocalls since 10.05 this morning, and I'm on the National Do Not Call Registry. Oh, that's, that's totally, yeah, you yeah. can just, that is a joke. That does not exist. That doesn't do a thing for you. I was using a, a product called Firewall most recently. I, I, that was the bane of the existence at work because nobody could actually call me. It was blocking all calls, not just robocalls. Sounds glorious. <laughs> yeah, it was actually kind of neat for a while. I, I did it for about a month where all my calls were being routed to this service that basically said, uh, Mark's not available, leave a message. And that's how it was screening every single one of my calls. Uh, it, was, it was actually pretty nice. <laughs> Uh, as you think about the balance of the technology process uh, and, and people, would you be willing to share a little bit about new job descriptions, new, new roles that are being created? Uh, we're looking at these concierge roles. Yeah. Uh, we're we're still trying to figure out how you know what the title is. You know, right now we're why don't we just call them what we've called them this time or call them? It's a really different position. We're not again putting more paint on the walls. We're really trying to rethink this and and try something different. And really, you can't be afraid to try things. Uh, I like to quote Homer Simpson all the time, who says, "Never try, never fail." Uh, but we really have to. Try some things out. See what sticks on the wall. Sometimes you'll get the opportunity to do a bigger try than maybe doing it in the fringes. Uh, many of you may have heard in the past that you know, innovation would always come outside of an organization often through a skunk's work project back in the 40s during the war. They had these little groups that would go off and create some innovation and then put it back into the center of the organization. Where we're at now is the organization needs to innovate and it can't wait for a, some group out there doing something else. Uh, otherwise, you'll end up like Blockbuster. And the last Blockbuster in the United States is in Bend, Oregon. Have you been? I haven't yet. I've been really wanted to. So the, if you've seen Captain Marvel, that's where she drops into Bend, Oregon. Why haven't you been? Oh, I've been to Bend. I just haven't been to the, the, the Blockbuster. But why not? Because oh, it's because Blockbuster. Have, right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, I think with that, uh, I guess, Mark, if you were making the case uh, to colleagues here who are not 
in the IT or strategy realm, how they can help make the case to people like you or to leadership. And at the same time, if there are people here that are more on the advancement services or IT side, prospect management side, how do they make the case um, from, from that perspective? Like, what do you think are the key messages that have allowed you to start to affect change? Somebody just out in the hallway said, hey, we're trying to move the cruise ship. You know, we're trying to turn the cruise ship. Um, you're turning it, and it's slow, it's challenging, but what lessons have you learned to at least give you good odds to affect change in a, in a change-resistant context? Well, there's a couple of ways to approach change in an organization. Of course, leadership is critical. And thankfully, at Oregon State University Foundation, with Mike Goodwin and Sean Scoville, they have been very supportive of these endeavors. And that's really a great start. And sometimes, if you're trying to eventually convince, sometimes I'm, I'm a big fan. I, I literally have a venture fund in my budget that I set aside, that I work with other departments and say, hey, we got this neat product. Uh, what do you guys think? Do you think we could do this? And I work with them. Sometimes they come to me. Sometimes I come to them. And I say, hey, have you tried this out? And You've never told me about this venture fund before. This sounds well, that's great. how I, that's, I used oh. those, uh, some of the, my, my venture money early on for uh, back in the day with Evertrue. Love it. Yeah. Anybody so, else have a venture fund we should know about? Anybody? No? It's, it's actually, there was a really good article recently in McKinsey, I believe, talking about those and how you can really drive innovation through that. But there's a number of ways. You're not all going to get the chance to, you know, start from the top. So sometimes start to show some efforts on the side of, and the other part is really working with your colleagues across the aisle, creating those partnerships. Mm, I know how hard it is. Trust me. Every day you've got so much to do, so many emails. I could just get this done and I wouldn't have to go talk to that department over here. Bring them in. Do things that are fun. You do think fun things from them. I mean, we went through a, a, a CRM migration, and one of the things we had every Friday we, that helped drive the project was a popcorn Fridays. I went and bought a popcorn machine, brought people down. Popcorn draws people in. We still have, it actually broke the other day after about four years, and we bought a brand new one, partly because of all the different efforts that we're doing. We want to keep that thing going, because every time, every Friday, we do a Popcorn Friday, we roll out a new feature, a new technology, a new um, upgrade, or a new what, with ever, you know, with every, all the products that we have, and it helps the staff learn about these things, and really kind of creates that community. You need the community to do this. It's not a, it's not a, a, a single, singular sport. It's a group, it's a group sport. When you think about the friction points in either the Oregon State Funnel or what you have observed through all of the leadership that you've done in Case District 8 and beyond, if you think about engagement, if you think about the qualification, the assignment, the solicitation, the retaining, um, where do you feel like the sector has the most opportunity to improve? Like I know your team has been really uh, deliberate, similar to what we heard from Iowa, similar to what we've experienced with or uh, Oklahoma State and others, to really have a prospect management team that is not reactive, focusing on bios all day, but is really proactively saying, what are we raising money for? How do we mine the data? How do we get those people in a portfolio? And then how do we follow up? And that can really seem like a make or break kind of function in the funnel that I think we're, we've had experience with. I think the, the institutions that really have that proactive prospect management, prospect research teams, they're the ones where we can really put hard dollars and ROI on the work. Otherwise, that can be a little, a little tricky. But like, what's your take when you think about engagement, qualification, assignment, and, and closing? 
um, where the biggest opportunity might be. Well, what's interesting there is research, I've been telling my research staff for 10 years that it was changing. It's already changed in, in many ways, the roles there. There's ways to think differently about that. We're working right now with, uh, we're working on machine learning to really start to automate some of these processes to where we need individuals who are really going to take that information and that data and make strategic decisions from. I don't, you know, the idea that we need someone to look up on Google uh, some ways, anybody can do that. We don't need staff sitting there typing into Google search keys. We can you know, start to understand how to change that and then what we really need are these analysts that are doing the kind of, you know, who's the right person to put in this portfolio. I know Joe would be really good with this person, this donor, and really taking that upper level thinking. But it's, it's been a challenge, partly because we're used to, uh, some people are addicted to those research profiles. How many of you do those event bios? Those things are, oh my, ugh. I feel your pain. I'm, I still, I mean, really, does anyone have time to read 45 bios before they go step into that room? No one does that. I mean, maybe they do if they enjoy reading, but I mean, I've, very few times I've seen those actually used, but we spend hours doing that, hours. And, you know, I went back. So why not go back Monday and say, hey, good news, no more research bios? What uh, would happen? We're, we're working on programming those away. So that's one of the things that we've got on our plate right now is how do we figure out how to automate that? There should not have to be human involvement in that. That should be no different than we take the information in from Eventbrite, it goes into the system, mm -hmm. the system then spits out your report with pictures and everything else and you take a look at it, you read it quickly, you're done. Because that's really what people want. They want to know, okay, what's he look like and you know, where's the, what's the next steps? Mm -hmm. that's all, those are all fields in your systems. That's what you should be doing anyway. Yeah. You don't have to worry about dangling participles or, uh, you know, uh, misspell. I mean, trust me, I used to, there was a time where they really, you know, the Oxford comma was a bane of my existence. So uh, in conclusion, any closing thoughts as you think about where uh, the sector's headed over the, the coming years or where you'd really like to take things at, at Oregon State? Well, the sector, it's really, I mean, I think we're going to be spending a lot of time really understanding the engagement that we do. The, the alumni association, the value of the alumni association in the 21st century. Uh, really understanding that relationship and how they can help in this as well. Uh, I know many institutions uh, have them separated and there's a disconnect and uh, we have a, a combined model now which has been really good uh, for advancement. And we're going to see more of evolution of advancement, I believe, in the coming years. The universities need more and more support. I mean, donor, I mean, not donors, but uh, enrollments are declining. If you haven't seen the data on that, that is frightening. And they're going to look for a replacement to that, those funds that aren't there anymore. And advancements, they look to us as, okay, help us. And we look to you for guidance on our direction. And I can't thank you enough for having been a good friend and partner uh, on this journey. Mark's going to be around tonight and tomorrow. I'd encourage you to connect with him if you don't already know him. Wealth of knowledge, incredible network. Uh, please join me in thanking Mark Koenig.